From Mushroom, this is some of my best work. I'm Jane Rocker. During a 1990 Christmas tour break, in a New South Wales home studio with his band and a phone number given to him by Michael Gudinski, Jimmy Barnes created some of his best work. For many years, as we'll hear, rock singers have been inspired by soul singers. In this case, the rock singer became the soul singer and it took him to the top of the charts through the early 1990s. Jimmy Barnes's cover of When Something Is Wrong With My Baby is shared with two other Australian music legends, John Farnham in the duet and Diesel on guitar, along with Jimmy's band. Starting in a studio with no expectations, no consequences and nothing to do. The song released 30 years ago is a personal high for Jimmy Barnes. There's a re-release of the album Celebrating 30 Years Out Now and the Soul Deep 30 Tour mid-2022. Go to jimmybarnes.com or wherever you get your music and tell a fellow Barnesy fan about some of my best work. Here's the story of When Something Is Wrong With My Baby from Jimmy's 1991 album, Soul Deep. Firstly, thank you so much for uh, agreeing to take part in an episode of Some of My Best Work to talk about a great track, When Something Is Wrong With My Baby, which, yeah, you did many years back now, but it came from the Soul Deep album of which you're celebrating 30 years and some new tracks on that as well. Let's sort of rewind the clock and to when you first heard this song yourself, Jimmy, and selecting it for this album of covers? Oh, man, I think the first time I heard this song was, you know, was early 70s, early 70s or even earlier. It might be late 60s. Uh, Sam and Dave, over the years of being a, being a singer, being a music fan, Sam Moore, who is the Sam of Sam and Dave, is one of my been one of my favorite singers. And well, you know, whenever was sing alongs, my brother, or even once I joined Cultures, or I always got to sing the Sam Moore parts because they were higher. You know, I've been a fan of that song for a long, long time. In fact, Cultures or used to do it quite often in sound checks, you know, with me and Mossy. So it's a song that's been in my radar for a long, long time. There was literally a point where Cultures were on tour and I would carry a Sam and Dave cassette around with me. And every single time I'd get in the car, I'd bang it on and we'd all be singing, you know, Soul Man and, you know, You Don't Know What I Got and all that sort of stuff, all the way, you know, across the Nullarborns. We were huge Sam and Dave fans. When I started doing Soul Deep, the idea really came from we were locked away, um, you know, we'd, we'd just, we're mid-tour, we're all going to go back to my house for Christmas, and I had members of the band from London, and uh, and a few from um, California, and, and, and various guys from all over Australia, and they were all in the band, and we're touring the Two Fires album, and Two Fires was a, was a big rock record that I made with Don Gaiman, the producer. It was a really great position to be in because the record just was so big that the tour just kept going, right? I, I was lucky enough to live in the Southern Highlands out of Sydney and I had a recording studio in my house 
And, uh, and, and I just saw all the guys hanging around for Christmas. And in fact, Don Gaiman, the producer, wanted to come out and spend Christmas with the family too, just because he was a, a, you know, a friend. But rather than us all just hang around all day and be you know, getting under each other's feet, we decided it'd be good. You know, every day we'd go down and try and record a song or two and just for fun. No, no intention of, of releasing it. You know? Well, no, no, you know, we hadn't planned to release it. It was just to see what we got. And so we, we decided um, that we we're going to record just, you know, our favorite songs from radio, favorite songs growing up, that sort of thing. And so, you know, we went in for the first, you know, few days and, and you know, it became apparent very quickly that all the songs we were doing were soul songs. And so it sort of we said, oh, this is like going to be a soul record. We still had no intention of really releasing it. Over the 10 days that followed, we made you know, this album, Soul Deep. We just loved doing it. We loved the project. We enjoyed the process. You know, normally when you're recording and you're under a deadline and, you know, this is it's a contractual album, you go in there and you've got to make the best record ever or your career's over and all that sort of stuff. There was no pressure with this. And we were actually just recording songs that we loved and having fun in the studio doing it. By the end of the sessions, we realized that we, you know, the whole thing sounded like that. It sounded really great. And, you know, and let's face it, um, you know, every single song on the record was like a, a smash hit. You know, they were just really well-crafted songs. So we did good performances and had a lot of fun making them. And, and that energy came through in the songs. But towards the end of making that record, that 10 days, we had a couple of songs that we thought needed needed to be duets. One in particular was the song that I'd sang for years with Mossy, Sam and Dave. And I think Mossy was overseas touring or something like that because I thought about getting Mossy to sing. And Don Gaiman said to me, who would you, you know, if you could get anybody in Australia, you know, because we were, we didn't have time to fly in, you know, people from overseas and all that sort of stuff. He said, if you could find in, if, who's your favorite singer in Australia that you'd like to work with? And I, you know, just jumped it. You know, I said, well, actually, one of my favorite singers in the world, bar none, is a guy called John Farnham. And Don Gaiman knew who he was. And he said, can you reach out to him? Now, I knew John. We were friends and acquaintances. We hadn't done a lot together. So I just I just got hold of his number through uh, Michael Gadinsky. And I gave John a call. And he sort of went, yeah, I'd love to do it. you know. And, and, and two days later, he flew up. When John arrived at the studio, he, he must have flown into Sydney the night before. He came down. He arrived at my studio door at about 10 o'clock in the morning. But when I say we were having fun recording these tracks, it did mean that we were sort of you know drinking wine and, and laughing and doing all sorts all night. When he got there, we were all a bit bleary-eyed and weary. And John looked like he'd had a reasonably, reasonably large night. And I said, what can I get you? Can I, you know, I'm thinking hot water and honey, you know, what singers do, you know. He said, oh, can you get me a large brandy? And I went, okay, you know, it's 10 o'clock in the morning. Because I had, had a beautiful 1930s Art Deco bar just outside the studio. It was really gorgeous. And I had it well stocked. And I went out there and I picked the best cognac I could find. And, uh, and, I, and I took it in. John said, that's too good. I, don't, yeah, I, need, I need sort of something a bit rougher. Fighting brandy, he called it. Uh, so I put, I put that cognac down and I went up and I found Jane's cooking brandy in the kitchen. St. Agnes, you know, it's like literally <laughs> if you use it yes. for cooking. And I poured a big glass and he, I brought it down and he said, ah, that's perfect. And he, and he went outside, stood outside my studio with a glass of brandy and a cigar at 10 o'clock in the morning and had a smoke and a drink. And then I'm standing looking at it, I'm going, this doesn't seem like the John Farnham I, you know, I, I pictured, you know, because I always thought John was, you know, really squeaky clean and, you know, didn't drink that much. <laughs> and, was, uh, you know, I, I thought he was a real gentleman and quiet and all, but he wasn't quiet at all. He's a very funny guy. He finished that, came in, opened his mouth and sang like a demon. It was incredible. People think thought that I was the sort of the, the wild guy of the rock and roll scene, you know, and John Farnham was a nice, quiet one. They had it all wrong. <laughs> I love that story.
What is it about soul music, Jimmy, that affects you in a way that rock and roll just can't? There's something about both. All the rock and roll music that I listened to as a young fella, uh, and that, that includes people like Little Richard and all that sort of stuff, particularly the British rock and roll that I was listening to in the early 70s and in the, in the late 60s, was really heavily influenced by blues and by soul music anyway. All the singers that in the rock bands that I admired listened to the singers, the soul singers that I listened to as well. So it seemed like a natural marriage to me. Soul sing, there's, there's something about the way, um, you know, soul singers, black singers particularly, uh, sing that has just, a, you know, a, an intensity and, a, and an emotional connection to the song. Rhythmically, That it's it's incredible. I just prefer the style of soul singing, you know. And, and when I say soul singing, I mean everything from, from Ray Charles to Little Richard. You know, you listen to, to Wilson Pickett, and Wilson Pickett screams more than most hard rock singers. So I, I like the idea of being a soul singer within the confines of a rock and roll band. And the bands that I was, as a young fella, when, when, when that sort of developed this sort of what I wanted to be, the bands that were doing that were, you know, you listen to like Ike and Tina Turner, you know, they were like a rock band, you know, with that wall of sound production. And Tina was this, you know, gospel soul singer in, in the band. Even the bands, the white bands from Britain, like Free, Paul Rogers singing, for instance, or Rod Stewart, they'd listen to all the singers that I was listening to, but they were in rock and roll bands. And I very early decided that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to be in a rock band, but I wanted to sing like a soul singer. I can scream and can peel the paint off walls pretty well. <laughs> Because I like to drive the rock, a band, a rock and roll band with my voice. When I get the opportunity to do stuff like the soul stuff, it gives me a chance to slip back a few notches and actually concentrate more on that soulfulness of the singing. It allows me to show a different aspect of my voice. Can I ask about performing this song and when you first did it with John in a live scenario? The, the, this is, I've, I've got to tell you the story how we made the film clip first. John agreed, you know, he loved the song, he loved the version that we did, and he, and I said, look, I think it's going to be a single, John. And he said, yeah, no, yeah, no problem, you know. And I said, we're going to make a film clip. You know, to make it easier for him, you know, because he was my guest, I flew down to Melbourne and we set up a film clip to record there and we found like a little town hall. But John got a limousine in from his place out in, you know, the Yarra Valley, wherever he is. He was in there and I flew down and I joined him there. And Mark Lazop played a great solo on the record. Mark was there in the film clip with us. And so anyway, the premise of the film clip was a couple of old mates getting together in a club after a gig. You know, the crowd's gone home and they're sitting, you know, reminiscing and having a quiet drink together which wasn't that difficult to do because um, John and I, you know, we had a lot to talk about and, you know, and he's a funny guy and, I, you know, we like each other's company. But, you know, they had these fake bottles of booze, fake bottle of brandy for John. At that time, I drank vodka, fake bottle of vodka for me. And I'm sitting there and we did a couple of takes and we we're pretending to be drinking. And I said, you know what? It's going to look a lot better if we let us, we just actually drink. Why don't you get real vodka, real brandy, and we'll just do it like that and we'll sit and have a drink. It's not, you know, it's not going to get out of hand. It's just going to be fun. Well, so they said yes, foolishly said yes. And of course, you know, you know, we just got hammered, me and John. We went through like about two bottles each. <laughs> and over the filming of the the course of the day filming. And anyway, it came to the end of the day and John was blind. He could hardly see. He couldn't do any more filming. The director said, I oh, will send you home, John, and we'll keep Jim on for some additional shots, you know? Because, you know, I could hold my, I could hold my booze better than him <laughs> at the time. We packed John up and we put him in a limo. He had a limo to drive him home, the same guy that drove him there. We go back to work. And John lived maybe, you know, 45 minutes from where we were filming. You know, about an hour and a half later, we get a phone call from the limousine driver and, and we stopped the filming. I, I got the phone and the limo driver says, John doesn't know where he lives. 
he'd forgotten where he lived. He was that so is drunk. Hilarious. He'd, he'd forgotten where he lived. And so I've I for years dined out on the fact and we you know, John and I started going out to to restaurants with the families and they are both our families, our friends and stuff. And you know, John would be the the guy who would sort of, you know, walk through the Japanese restaurant with his pants down and stuff like that. You know, I, and I would go, I was just I was shocked. I'm like I literally was a quiet one of the gang of the of the duo and, and John was a wild one. As, as you well know, and as most people in this country well know, John Farnham is a powerhouse of a singer, whether it's on record or on stage. The guy knows how to deliver. I'd be lucky enough to go and get to sing this song with, with John. Sometimes he'd come and sing it at my shows. I've, and the first time I sang with him, I think the first time I ever sang live with him, I sang When the War Is Over with his band. That might be the Maya Music Ball. And I remember standing on the side, he was sort of eight songs into his set and just watching him sing and he got better and better and better and better and by the time the seventh song come you know and I'm going to start singing on the eighth I was absolutely panicking you know because he was just he was such a great singer he is such a great singer so uh, every every time I've sang with John I've had to be on top of my game and I've had and it's made me very very nervous because I don't know many people in the world who have a tone that pure who have a range like that and have a feel that he does it's just unbelievable yeah, I, I read that it won a Logie Award for most popular music video. So I bet maybe John Farnham, when he sees that video clip, he thinks he, he, he was he, on no, his he way probably home. Goes, and- <laughs> he, no, he probably thinks to himself, when did Jimmy Barnes get, you know, when did he green screen <laughs> me in there? I don't remember being there. As unorganised as we were, reaching out as a fan to John, as, as a friend and as a fan, to do the song with him in the first place, it was one of the songs that may that was instrumental in connecting with the people. I mean, that album went on to become uh, the biggest album I've ever had and the biggest album on Mushroom's catalogue, full stop, I think. And a, a large part of that was that chemistry between John and I. And I've got to say, a large part of that was just this sheer joy of singing with, with John Farnham. Now, can we talk a little about what you've done on the 30th anniversary of the album because there's a couple of new tracks you also sing with uh, Josh Teskey's. Take me through how you wanted to sort of commemorate those 30 years but sort of add something new as well. Well, as I said before, because we we didn't plan the original record, it was just sort of something that evolved, we didn't get a lot of time to reach out to some of the singers overseas that I wanted to sing with as well, you know. Besides singing with John, I would love to have sang with Ray Charles or, or you know, there would have been other singers I would have reached out to as well. So, you know, the album could have had more, a lot more duets on it. So when, when we came around the 30th anniversary and they said, well, let's do you want to add some tracks to it? I thought that was a good opportunity for me to tip my hat to at least a couple of the singers that I've grown up and learning learning to sing with. The first guy that I wanted to reach out to, of course, was uh, was Mossy, because uh, I'd just spent 40 years in a band with Mossy, and every single day I listened to his, you know, he's got an incredible silky voice, and every day I learned something from him, you know? And we, and not only that, you know, he the way he played guitar influenced the way I sing, everything about him. So I thought, you know, as a soul record, as a part of my soul and a part of my history, Mossy should be on this record. So we did the song Reflections, uh, we redid it and got Mossy to play guitar and he, and he sang beautifully on it. And it was funny, when Mossy came came in to sing it, he uh, he said, uh, you've been singing the wrong words for years. So there's a couple of lines where I'd sort of, because I'm you know notoriously uh, bad at, at getting lyrics together, and and I'd sort of uh, written down the wrong the wrong lines. So, so there's a couple of lines on the song that uh, Mossy straightened out that I now know what the words are. But once again, it was just great to have that connection to someone who's been so instrumental in making me the singer that I am. And another one who was who was as instrumental but in a different way was Sam Moore because literally I'd, I'd listened to him since I was a young singer, a young tyke, and 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 really 
listen to him all the time. And it was during the COVID period. So I wasn't sure how we were going to get on to Sam Moore. Kevin Shirley tracked down a number for his manager, who happens to be his wife. We sent an email to to Sam. I just you know said that you know Sam, you're one of my favorite singers of all time. I'm a rock and roll singer from Australia who's admired you for a long time. Would you consider doing a duet? And he, and he wrote this lovely letter back saying how he knew exactly who I was and he would love to have a go. Please send him a track and we'll see what we could do. So I sent him, you know, um, soothe me. And he loved it, and he just and he and he put his vocal on, and it was just it was like we fitted like a glove, you know, the two of us. It was like um, to be able to sing with one of the one of the people that you've admired from a distance and who, who inspired you to sing all, all your life, and who is now eighty six years old and is still singing like a demon, still singing as beautifully as he was. It was just it was something that really I really sort of looked up to, and I really I felt blessed to get the chance to uh, to sing with Sam Moore. So so. I, we did it and we, and we sent it all back and he, and he absolutely loves it and at some point maybe we'll do some more I just I'm, I'm just so impressed with him and I'm so you know and just the fact that he's 86 years old still singing really great and he's still touring it's in, it's inspirational it's amazing and then I looked at the record and I thought well you know there's a lot of the influences from the past because of Mahalia basically Mahalia my daughter who's a great soul singer she's introduced me to a lot of great soul music in this country over the years and I thought it'd be really nice to see and to pay homage to the way soul music is going in this country and I had a look around and and Josh Teske is probably you know hands down the best soul singer of his style in the country at the moment you know a really rootsy sound you know sounds a lot like you know Sam Cooke, he sounds like Otis, he's got this beautiful tone in his voice. Uh, and I'd had the pleasure of singing with Josh a t- couple of times and we just blended really well together. So I reached out to, to Josh and, and he, of course, he, you know, he said, yeah, I'd love to do it. And, and once again, it was in the thick of COVID and we, and we managed to do this Josh from home in, in Melbourne and me in, in Sydney. And we, and we blended the two together and, um, and I think we got a really great version. Uh, you know, I love singing with Josh Teske anytime. And so much so that, um, when the record was finally being put out and we were deciding to go on tour with it, I didn't think, I couldn't think of a better way to, to package the tour together than with myself, Josh and my beautiful daughter, Mahalia. Jimmy, I can imagine that Josh would have been nervous to sing with you, Jimmy Barnes, though. I don't think so. I think Josh is quietly conf- <laughs> he's quietly confident. I've, you know, every time I've sang with, I'm sure, like you know, like any of us singers, we get nervous. I mean, John John got nervous, and I got ner- I get nervous singing with everybody. But it's that, it's more about you know you wanting to be your best, um, and do the best you can. Uh, I've, I've I've sang with Josh before, and you know I'll go up there, you know, and I'm you know I'm much different singer to him. Like you know on a live on a live stage, you know, I, I tend to be you know a lot more full on and and, and pushy and in front of the beat and all this sort of stuff. Josh, every time we've done it, Josh just does his own thing. And the beauty of it is, you know, he's he's back and, and it's rich and I'm I'm edgy and I'm and I'm sharp and, and it's and the the combination of the two voices and that, that and that difference in the two voices is what makes it attractive. I'm sure he gets nervous but he but he doesn't show it and and, and he uses it for good rather than evil. <laughs> Could we talk about the cover art for this record when it came out? Just your memories of that coming together there was a bunch of you know Pierre Baroni for a start let's let's talk about Pierre Baroni Pierre is um PB was one of my dearest dearest friends and and, and people in Melbourne who listen to uh, PBS in, in Melbourne will know Pierre from his soul shows Pierre had the biggest collection of soul original 45s I've ever seen in my life and knew more about soul music than 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 anybody else I knew so when I made started making this record 
Pierre was like my my library. I'd go to Pierre and ask him about songs, and he'd you'd say, Pierre, when was this song come out? And he'd tell you not only when it came out, what studio it was written in, what time they recorded the vocal, who played the horns, and who went and made lunch. You know, he knew everything about every song, so it was incredible. I, I said to Pierre, I want to make a. You know, there was lots of covers. You know, whether there were Sam Cooke covers and Otis Redding covers of the uh, that were particularly stylized at the time, with you know, with the singer on the front, like in that sort of style of photo. And Pierre was a great photographer. We've lost Pierre uh, last year, uh, unfortunately, and a dear, dear, dear friend of ours. And Pierre did all the artwork for the record. One of the funniest things I've ever heard, well, ever happened to me, was when we were making the film clip with John, I could see Pierre was there and I could see the director, you know, and him chatting away and and they were and they were, they were, they were sort of obviously trying to cover in their mouth so I couldn't see. And it concerned me. I thought maybe I was doing something wrong. And they, they, they said, no, no, you're right, keep going. And then we'd do it again. And, and then they'd, they'd start having a little huddle again and chatting. Eventually, what happened was they came up to me and they were really, they, I could see they were absolutely freaked out. In those days, my ears stuck out like a taxi with the doors left open, you know? <laughs> and, and what had happened was the lights that were backlighting the, the, the film clip were shining through my ears. And so my ears were glowing red. And, uh, and, and <laughs> this is a true story. And they had to, they, they got, it was really, they were fumbling for words and that. And, and they, ended, they asked me if they could stick sticky tape on the back of my ears. So the light didn't shine through so much. Some gaffer tape. So I sang that song and I was just, I was mortified. I'm going, are you serious? But, you know, I could, they showed me the run and I could see my ears glowing in the dark, you know? So I thought, oh my God, all right, do it. So that, that, was, yes. that, was, that was me coming together with one of my, because I'd been called, you know, big ears since I was a kid. So it was one of me come, facing one of my biggest fears uh, in the public forum. So it was, it, was a, it was a shocking moment and also an enlightening moment, to coin a phrase. And maybe just one more question about Pierre because he was also a good friend of mine, Jimmy, and um, and yeah, he is he is greatly missed. And as you say, he was that encyclopedia when it came to soul music. But I, I wonder, was there anything that he shared with you that sort of that you didn't know before, a song that you discovered through him? I, I wonder. Oh man, let, let me let me count the ways. Hang on. <laughs> After Soul Deep, I went on to make another four, three or four, you know, soul records. Half the songs on the uh, Soul Deep record, Pierre helped me choose. But then as I moved on, you know, so songs like Hard Working Woman off the last Soul record I make, I put a spell on you, Nina Simone, uh, A Fool in Love by uh, Ike Tina Turner, Soothe Me and Do You Love Me, uh, Hound Dog by Big Mama Thornton. Pierre helped me select tracks for every record I made, every Soul record I made. And, you know, and he had a lot of influence on the rock records as well. As a friend, I would, I would say to Pierre, um, look, I need some music to listen to inspire me. And Pierre would make me like four hours of constantly, he'd mix singles together of, of like B-sides of great soul songs and, and songs that I'd never heard before. I remember on a Motown tour, you know, about 20 years ago, and the Stars of Motown or something was called, and it had the Temps and it had uh, Martha and the Vandellas and all that sort of stuff, and uh, Mary Wells, a whole bunch of people. And we got out there, and there weren't, a lot, of the, a lot of the singers on the thing were a bit guarded because who, you know, they didn't know who I was, and you know, they, that, you know because it was in Australia, they put me in the bill because I had the soul record. Uh, and some of them, Martha, like Martha Reeves was, was, was a little bit standoffish, and, and I was trying to break the ice with her, and she seemed very cold. And she'd, uh, she'd obviously been one of those singers who'd been worked over by, by promoters for years and, and didn't trust a lot of strangers, you know? 
know, they were my heroes, all these people. And I was trying to really reach out to them. So getting towards the end of the tour, I had a party at my house in Sydney uh, and I invited them all for dinner. PB, of course, Pierre Baroni, uh, he said, let me come up and I'll, and I'll DJ at your party. And so he set up his turntables and he was playing records, you know, singers from Temptations, Four Tops, uh, you know, you name it, all in my lounge room having dinner. Pierre was spinning records. And I'd seen, I'd seen uh, Martha Reeves come up to uh, PB and she's going, what's this record? And he's going, uh, that's, <laughs> that's the B-side of your single, uh, you know, in 1966. And he's how do you know that? He said, I could tell you where it was recorded and who played on it, you know, and she's gone and she fell in love with PB. And it was like, suddenly, you know, we had, we had maybe two or three gigs left to go. And from that moment on, all of those singers became my best friend through the connection with PB because he was just so knowledgeable of their, of, of the music that they made music that shaped America and that shaped the world. As far as soul music went, he was loved and, and he was loved by me. And when I went to record my last soul record in Nashville, PB was with me every step of the way, arguing with me, you know, going, no, nah, you can't do it like that. That's too, you know, you're ruining the feel. You know, it, it, he never pulled his punches, PB. And 99.999% of the time, he was absolutely right. So I, I listen to PB a lot. When I say he's, he's dearly missed, I mean, I miss him totally as a friend, one of my favorite people in the world. But as a musical director uh, and a musical influencer, he is irreplaceable. Yep, I'm with you on that, Jimmy. Beautiful stories. Thank you for sharing those. Check out the Soul Deep 30, celebrating 30 years of Jimmy's massive album. Out now and the Soul Deep 30 tour, mid-2022. Go to jimmybarnes.com or wherever you get your music. I'm Jane Rocker. Thanks for listening.